0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
3: This is the Cork Today replay on C103.
4: A very good Wednesday morning to you as we welcome you along to the programme. Let me kick off with a call that's come in from Anne to the programme. And Anne is wondering, and I'm assuming she's not on her own, and are others frustrated if you have a loved one in hospital at the moment, particularly in uh, CUH, even though I thought CUH, that their visiting hours now, were somewhat back to normal the way they were before uh, COVID. But Anne's brother is in hospital at the moment and she has described trying to visit her brother as an absolute nightmare. When she tries to get through to CUH on phone, trying to get through to the ward to inquire if it's okay to come up and visit him, she, she's never able to get get through. Now, she's taken the chance to drive up a few times, but then when she gets, she's travelling from Mallow, when she gets up to Cork City, parks up the car, heads into CUH, heads up to her brother's ward, she discovered it's a waste of a journey because the ward has been closed on that particular day to... Uh, visitors. So what she's trying to do is get through on the phone to say, is everything OK? Can I come up to see my brother? But she's having difficulty getting through on the phone. She said she's finding the whole thing very, very frustrating and she's wondering, is she out on her own on this one? Or are our others feeling the same? As I say, I know I checked in with John Paul and they had gone back, the COH had gone back to a reasonably normal visit and I think it's one person is allowed in, is it between two and uh, four? But it does depend and it does, and, depend on ward from, and it does vary from ward to ward because you can get one ward that something will happen maybe there's an outbreak of COVID maybe there's a winter vomiting bug, a flu outbreak, it can be anything and for that reason they'll close down that ward to visitors and then it will be closed for a period of time and of course family members in Anne's case she's not able to find out until she gets up there and I am assuming if I get on to CUH to say why are you not answering the phones I'm assuming will will be told it's just too busy and they get to as many phone calls as they can. So I definitely can sense your frustration and in that you're trying to do the right thing by contacting them in advance to find out, can I come up but not being able to get through and the fact that you've had a couple of wasted journeys uh, that's even worse to actually get to the hospital know that your brother or your loved one whoever it is, is you know The other side of that door, and you can't get in. I can. I certainly can sense uh, your frustration. So, if anybody else has had similar problems or can offer advice to Anne on how she can get around it, uh, can you please contact us? Now, we have contacted the Southwest Hospital uh, Group, and they are getting a staff member to give Anne a call. But so that situation for Anne has been sorted. But as I say, we're, we're throwing it out there to see our other family members frustrated or other family members having difficulties trying to get in to see a loved one in hospital. And as I say, all of this very much arose because of COVID. And just on COVID, I'm reading in the papers today that a company in the north has won the tender from the HSE to finally, finally, finally deliver the pandemic bonus. This is to the non-HSE staff. Hard to get an accurate figure, but they reckon there's somewhere around 40,000 people who were promised this bonus payment for all the work they did, particularly in the early days of the pandemic. And that bonus payment was announced back in January of this year. So we're always coming up to the first anniversary of the announcement of the bonus payment. And at the time everybody thought this was fantastic and it was a €1,000 bonus payment and everyone thought it was a terrific idea and people wanted to acknowledge the great work that was done by the frontline staff. Now I know there was a series of arguments afterwards with other groups coming forward saying they were entitled to a bonus payment and there was a bit of to and froing for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months and then it got sorted who exactly would receive the bonus and I think it's been, there's a €600 bonus and there is a €1,000 bonus and it will be non-taxable and all of that, So uh, then there was just a problem. Some were getting it and some were not. And I, I certainly every time I speak with Ty Daly, who represents the nursing homes and nursing home staff who really were at the front line of uh, COVID at the start of the pandemic, they're one of the group who haven't received their bonus payment yet. And many of them who've contacted us over the years are saying the good has almost been taken out of this, of this payment. So we followed with interest the HSE, particularly when they put their hands up and said, look, we're not able to do this. We're going to get an outside company to do it. So it had to go to tender. So Kashi, I think you'd pronounce it, K-O-S-I, Kashi Corporation Limited, they've won the contract. They say they're quick out, of, quick out of the blocks. They've already started working with the HSC and the Department of Health. They're initially trying to identify who is eligible for the payment and a spokesperson said that Kashi will be providing guidance on the process to those employers who they reckon will have employees who are entitled to this payment. The company is registered in Newry in County Dam. They have a track record they've worked before with Antashka and they've also worked with the Irish Prison Service among others. The much criticised delays in paying cleaners, porters, other workers. It had been blamed by the HSE. They say they had technical difficulties in trying to pay people who were outside of their payroll system. They were saying, look, they're not on our payroll system and for that reason we're finding it difficult uh, to pay them. So the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly speaking in the Dáil says that only six areas of health care are now being considered for the remaining payments. They are the private and voluntary nursing homes that I spoke about with uh, Ty uh, Daly. The uh, home care workers contracted by the HSE. Members of the Defence Forces. They did a lot of COVID work, particularly at the start of the pandemic. Long-term residential care centres they are going to be getting the payment. And the Dublin Fire Brigade paramedics and it, they seem to be the only paramedics that are included. Now up to the middle of this month 85,632 HSE staff had received the payment and they were glad to get the uh, the payment. There was a further almost 40,000 uh, people who work for section 38 agencies. They are of course HSE funded, providing various services. They've all received their payments so the total so far is one hundred twenty-four thousand two hundred and one have received their payments to date. And as I say, they reckon it's about forty thousand other people are entitled to it. So if you are one of those and certainly we have a lot of them listening to the programme because we I'd say there isn't a week has gone by since this announcement was first spoken about last January that we don't get a call or a text or an email in from somebody saying I'm still waiting on my pandemic bonus payment any sign of it coming and there was a fear factor particularly with the cost of living bonuses that were announced and are going to be paid out by the government there was a fear factor I think between some of the frontline workers that they would be further forgotten about and they'd go when there were other bonus payments to be paid they'd be put further back uh, along but in fairness to Stephen Donnelly and in to the Department of Health and the HSC they put their hands up and say look the HSC not able to do it technical difficulties for them so let's get, a, get another company in who will do it and this Kashi uh, Corporation Limited from Nury as I say they seem to be straight out of the blocks because the contract has only just been awarded and they say they're already working with the HSC and the Department of Health so do let us know if you are one of those 40,000 uh, people do let us know when you receive your pandemic uh, both God Fingers crossed, you'll certainly have it in time for Christmas. Sky Sports announced this week that they will no longer broadcast GAA matches from next year, as both parties could not come to an agreement on a new deal. Will this be good news for GAA fans, some of whom could not view matches due to they being behind a paywall on Sky? Former GAA president and Ireland South MEP uh, Sean Kelly joins me with his views. Good morning to you, Sean. Good morning, Professor. And uh, you're very welcome. And we'll talk in a moment about, uh, I know it was announced yesterday, the deal that has struck, been struck now between the GAA and uh, RTE. But firstly, go back to the original deal with Sky in 2014. Were you, a fo- were you for or against that at the time?
5: At the time, it was difficult because not as many people were involved in Sky uh, pay-per-view and there were some games they couldn't uh, view. But when you looked at the overall objective of creating competition for the TV rights of our games, and also with the opportunity to perhaps grow the audience abroad, and then as time went by, there weren't that many games. There were some that people couldn't view, but most of the major games, at least, uh, were free to air. So I think people kind of adapted to it without being fully happy with this. But looking at the logic behind this, it, it was an interesting experiment to see what sort of an audience we would have abroad. And, of course, also the fact that Sky were doing our games live, it put pressure on RTE uh, to up their game as well in terms of presentation, etc. So there was good and bad in it. I thought initially maybe it was a bit rushed, but I could see the logic behind it. And I think as time went by, uh, people were able to adapt to it. And uh, most people, I think, didn't have as many problems with it in the end as they had maybe in the beginning.
4: Do you believe the the deal uh, with Sky did promote the game abroad? It did help?
5: This is the big question. Why really are Sky pulling out? OK, the GA and Sky has said to buy a mutual agreement. But that's the norm when things like that happen. But is it because they weren't getting enough games to justify having such an involvement? Or is it because they didn't grow the games and the audience as much as they thought? Mm-hmm. That really is the question. Mm-hmm. We can't answer that at the moment. But I have a suspicion that it is the latter, because it isn't that easy to grow Indigenous games amongst a new audience, especially when there's a limit in the number of games. Normally, for games of that nature, we'll say the Premier League would have up to, I think, something like 35 to 37 games in succession. People would identify with one team and start following them then and watch their games. There wasn't the same opportunity, with the GAA Championships, obviously, to do that. I just wonder, was that a factor? But it would be interesting to find out because the analysis that Sky would have done internally, that would be very valuable to us in terms of where we will go with perhaps growing our games internationally in the future, if that is possible at all.
4: Yeah, because you're right, you know, Sky at the end of the day is a commercial business. They're in the business to make money. They're not in the business to promote GAA as a sport across the world.
5: That's absolutely correct.
4: Yeah.
5: And that's why their internal analysis would be very interesting. The other yeah. area I'm slightly regretful about is that this happened now. Because I spent 10 years trying to convince the GAA to change the temperature format which agreed last year at Special Congress, and it's actually coming into operation next year with something like 24 new high-profile games in their own Robin series. Also, the Talcine Cup has just started. I think that's going to grow immeasurably into the future. And what I would actually have liked to have seen, even if we had to do it only for one year or two years, to ask I to stay uh, aboard for that period so that we could assess... How the audience would react? Was there an opportunity to go the games? Because now, having done the deal with RT and to the BBC to a lesser extent, we are actually sold our media rights without knowing actually how much uh, they are worth in terms of the new developments which we're going to see over the next number of years.
4: Yeah, and it's so it's, a, f- prefer- it's a five year contract, isn't it? It's
5: a five year contract? Yeah. Personally, I would have preferred to, to have only a, a deal done for one year or two years, and then you would be able to assess. Because I think uh, the new championship format is going to lead to, first of all, far more games being played. Secondly, far more games being televised. And thirdly, probably bigger audiences, both in terms of attendance and also in television viewing. And we are now more or less have done a deal without actually knowing how big that can point. be. That's a good point, that's a good point. And because, also the Falcon Cup, yeah, which is a second-tier competition, yeah. that has got off to a great start last year, but it's still only in its infancy next year will be the second year, and I think that too will grow. So, so should the value of the media rights accordingly.
4: Because I did read in the papers yesterday that one reason from Sky was that the new shortened GAA season they weren't happy with that and that didn't suit them.
5: And that's probably true. and It doesn't suit a lot of people, actually, <laughs> because people find that it's too confined. I know even from a personal point of view, I was in Croke Park five weekends in a row in the June, beginning in July. And, you know, that's too much for most people. And obviously people who have to go and support teams can't do it. So that's certainly something... That has to be assessed. But then there's the other side of it. It frees up players. They know when the season is over and they can go back to their clubs. So it can never really uh, satisfy everybody. But definitely, from a TV rights point of view, if the games were going on into August, it be obviously more attractive because they would have a longer season and therefore a longer paying uh, audience as well.
4: Yeah, and I know when it was announced that Sky was going to, were terminating their contract with the GAA, you were quoted as saying that you hoped RTE wouldn't get a monopoly, which they had had uh, previously. But looking at what was announced yesterday, they almost have a monopoly once again, don't they?
5: I cannot, when you, let scrub away all the padding. You're absolutely right, Patricia. OK, the BBC are showing more games. But the rest is essentially RTE. GA Go is in RTE, GA uh, Consortium, which is for games shown abroad, which is fine. Then the RTE, TG Catter, that's essentially going back to a monopoly. And the one thing that Sky did do was by giving their full support a very professional presentation of games, etc., it forced the, the RTE... To look at how they were presenting games and maybe up the ante, a bit. and of course, if you have an essentially a monopoly, you have no opposition to benchmark yourself against. So a certain amount of complacency can set in, and that wouldn't be good either.
4: Yeah yeah and actually somebody's asking what about the the matches that we broadcast here on uh, C103 well I was looking at the uh, the GAA and their statement on broadcasting from 2023 to 2027 and people will be delighted to hear that the 24 local radio stations nationwide of which we be one here at C103 we've all retained uh, our rights because those matches that we broadcast are some of the most exciting commentaries to listen to. And I'm sure that's reflected in local radio stations all over the country.
5: Yes, indeed. It is an absolutely wonderful development. It has actually helped to promote the GA yeah. at local level and within counties because everybody loves listening to the local radio commentaries. I know a lot of people in Kerry, and I'm sure the exact same with you in Cork, in C103, Turn down the television commentary and turn up the local radio (laughs) commentary. We
4: all do. (laughs) We all do that. And I
5: think that's a reflection of how much the local radios, including C103, have given to the games and how the service they're providing. And there's no question that has to continue with as many games as possible uh, being uh, broadcast on local radio because it's often the most exciting, most entertaining. I sometimes,
4: occasionally, slightly biased, but we like that. <laughs> we do indeed. We do indeed. When it's our, when it's the parish are playing. Okay, listen, Sean. Thank you for that, and uh, thanks for joining us on the program this morning.
5: You're most welcome to this
4: anytime. Good morning to you. That is Ireland South MEP, uh, Sean Kelly. But, of course, uh, more joining us this morning as a former GAA uh, president. But, yes, uh, the GAA issued its broadcasting statement yesterday. Now that Sky are gone, predominantly now we're back to uh, RTE, will be showing the 31 championship games across the island and the BBC. They return, they retain the Ulster semi-finals uh, rights but uh, the majority of the, the matches now will be shown a uh, mixture between RTE and TG Carr. but all as to say the local radio stations will retain their uh, rights and we are very lucky here at C103 we have probably I would think one of the the most outstanding sports departments I won't name them all but it is under the stewardship of uh, Michael Scanlon uh, but all the, the guys I think, yes, am I right saying so, say there's gals as well there's gals as well I'm just thinking of some there straight away um, but they do uh, just an absolutely phenomenal job and uh, we are forever getting in comments from people saying how much they enjoyed a particular commentary of a match so those matches certainly will continue up to 2027 with the GAA 0818103103 John Paul taking your calls
3: Cork today on C103
4: with
6: Corrigan Insurances McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group they don't just talk the talk they walk the walk cmig.ie
4: comments in on the GAA and the announcement that RTE has expanded its rights with the Gaelic Games uh, their Gaelic Games coverage for the next five years they, they say there will be more live games there will be a new second highlights programme as part of uh, the deal and uh, they are also guaranteeing free to air coverage to audiences in Ireland across 12 months of the year from 2023 to 2027 after Sky uh, pulled out of the deal they had with the GAA since 2014. Kay in Bannon says, I think that it's great that our national game, it should only ever have been free to air on RTE and other Irish channels. She sees it as a great news story. And then Aidan in Mitchellstown says that when he lived in Australia, they used to watch most of the GAA games on Channel 7 in Melbourne. They would rebroadcast the coverage of a game from Ireland. However, when during Aidan's time of living in Australia, that all end it because it all moved to GAA Go. And he said that was fine you were able to watch it on GAA Go but the thing was you had to pay for GAA Go whereas when it was being rebroadcast on Channel 7 it was free and he says uh, watching matches, watching GAA matches uh, is a huge huge uh, hit with the Irish community in uh, Melbourne and I think that's um, it is reflected with many Irish communities right across the world. I mentioned that a company now has won the tender from the hSE to finally finally deliver the pandemic bonus, uh, and in particular it 's to the non hSE staff the bonus that was announced last January people working within the hSE the frontline workers they 've already received it, but it is people in nursing homes it 's people working in hospices it 's agency staff at the hse it 's the home care uh, workers they 're all uh, waiting uh, so now hopefully something will happen this company contracted out they 'll move and they 'll move quickly and uh, the pandemic bonus hopefully will be paid. Somebody said, so once again, they're forgetting about the frontline workers who worked in supermarkets. I put my life on the line when COVID was around and that, that group of people, my sympathies to you because that group of people, the supermarket workers were one of the ones that when it first got announced and other groups were coming out saying, what about us? Why can't we receive it? Uh, they were one of the group of uh, people who many people who worked in supermarkets uh, contracted uh, COVID because you're right, they were at the front line and they were out there every single day uh, working and, you know, so that we could continue doing what we're doing and allowing us to go out and do our shopping, et cetera. But they, they never knew from one day to the next when people were coming into their shops, not just supermarkets, it was all shops, garages, uh, et cetera. But unfortunately, they weren't included. The frontline payment that was announced was very much for frontline workers within the health uh, sector. And Josephine in Bandon says, what about carers? Will we get any payment for minding our highly special needs people? We are very much the forgotten people we got no support at all from any organisations, particularly organisations that were supposed to support us. We lost everything in the midst of uh, COVID, particularly during the pandemic. It was a very, very lonely time. And uh, Josephine speaking up on behalf of family carers and Josephine is right for family carers who are looking after loved ones. She's right. All of their supports literally overnight disappeared. People who would have had special needs, uh, Children and adults, the schools and the day centres all closed. People who would have had loved ones, say, with Alzheimer's, their day centres all closed. The day centres for older people uh, closed. And everything fell back then on the family carer and, you know, home helps that were going into people's houses. In many cases, they stopped going into people's houses. And it was a, the lockdown period for family carers was a very very trying time and uh, to be honest I don't know in some cases how some didn't crack and maybe some did and we just are not hearing about it but Josephine you're right and I know there was a huge push from Family Carers Ireland when that bonus payment got announced saying look here's a group of people that really should be looked after because they were the ones left really on their own particularly during uh, lockdown so I have sympathies with you as well Josephine thank you for your call to OA one ace at uh, 10310 at 3. Now, another, uh, this is come in to us by WhatsApp and this is one, I suppose, that's food for thought for all of us from Miriam. Thank you, Miriam, for your WhatsApp and said, Patricia, there's so much focus now and rightly so on Ukrainians and on the refugee problem that we have with uh, Ukrainians and there's so much focus uh, on our cost of living crisis. But I wonder, as Miriam, did you or others see a report on the BBC? Now, I, I didn't see this particular report that Miriam is talking about She also says that there was a feature done in The Examiner on Saturday and it is to do with famine in the Horn of Africa at the moment, in particular in Somalia. She said starving little babies taking their last breath. Miriam says, I actually couldn't sleep last night after seeing the mother's story that was featured on the BBC report of her baby dying of hunger on the long journey to try to get help. The baby had to be left on the roadside and the mother was unable to bury the little baby. She had to watch the vultures move in. Truly shocking. Oh my God, what a picture you paint, uh, Miriam. She said, I'm aware it's uh, an unstable area with drought, etc. But when I hear people in this country whining, particularly after the huge budget supports that the government have announced. We really do need to stop and think outside of our own little world. Maybe you could highlight the aid agencies on your programme, says uh, Miriam. And Miriam, thank you for that, uh, Miriam. Uh, and I, can, I know whenever I see I didn't see that particular BBC feature that you're talking about but the way you describe it, it must have been truly heartbreaking to watch and that often happens when you see something like that and you go to bed and all you can think of is that poor poor mother having to leave her, her baby, having died in her arms obviously, having to leave the baby on the side of the road and then to see the vultures move in, oh God... It's the kind of stuff of nightmares, isn't it? And you're right, the Horn of Africa, you'll see every now and again ads come up for the different aid agencies and so many of the Irish agencies, you know, the likes of Trocra, the likes of uh, Concern, uh, Oxfam, Irish Aid, all of them are working in the Horn of Africa. So I suppose if any of us have an extra few bob at the moment or an extra bit of money and I know people will say, God, I don't have anything extra. You know, for people, don't have anything extra I fully understand but for those that do have a little bit extra particularly as we're coming into Christmas it's kind of a good idea to try and donate to some of those charities who are trying to work with famine but Miriam is right there's so much focus I think going on the war in Ukraine and rightly, you know, it's only, it's only natural that when we have the situation that we're having and what Putin has done, what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, it's only right that the focus goes on it. But because of that, you'll have then another section of the world who get completely forgotten about. Because I guarantee you, if the situation in Ukraine wasn't happening and there wasn't war, and there wasn't an invasion in Ukraine, so much of the international focus would be on this famine in the Horn of Africa. But it's kind of very much been put on the back burner because I know one of the stories at the start of the invasion on Ukraine one of the stories that came out was you know Ukraine is a great country a great bread for other countries because of the amount of grain that they produce and remember there was a focus to try to get the, the Russians to hold off so that they, particularly around Odessa that they could get grain out and they needed grain for the Horn of Africa and it was predicted that if they didn't get the grain out that they knew there was a famine coming to the Horn of Africa and if they couldn't get the food out they were talking about more and more people would die in the Horn of Africa. So there was a little bit of focus put onto that particular area, but it looks like now the fact that Miriam is saying it got featured in The Examiner last Saturday and then the BBC focusing on it last night, we're probably going to start seeing more and more. But you know. Uh, Miriam makes a good point as well. We have a tendency to whine and moan and whinge and think there's nobody worse than we are and you know really we can be thankful that we're not living in. We are a country that uh, our previous, our forefathers witnessed famine so we do know what famine is like. We know the history of this uh, country so let us not forget what is happening in other parts of the world as well. So thank you uh, Miriam for drawing my attention uh, to that and there are so many aid agencies as I say that are are working in the Horn of Africa and long may they continue. 0818103103. And then something else that I referenced yesterday and actually I can already see some texts coming in and this is to do with illness benefit and people that are on illness benefit. Yesterday somebody asked us, uh, asked me if I could find out would somebody on illness benefit be entitled to any of the bonus payments, the bonus payments that the government are starting to give out to do with the cost of living Crisis. The first of those payments was made with the Halloween, the extra weeks payment that was made to a lot of people, not everyone on social welfare, but a lot of people on social welfare got a double week last week. Now, as we go into November, from the 14th of November, there's a variety of different one off payments that are going to be made. You know, things like living alone, uh, people on carers, people on disability benefits are all going to be getting just a one off payment to help with the cost of living. So somebody was asking about illness benefit and I did look into it yesterday and I was saying to people, if you are on illness benefits, they didn't qualify for the autumn double payment uh, last week, but I thought they were entitled to the Christmas bonus uh, payment. But somebody listening to us in, uh, Mary in County Clare says, Patricia, I was listening to you um, on C103 and I think I heard you say that anyone on illness benefits will be getting the Christmas bonus. Sadly, I can report We won't get it. There isn't any sympathy for anyone that's sick in this country. I'm on illness benefit now for the last 14 months. Do you know we are the only group on the social welfare payment that doesn't qualify for the double payment at Christmas? I feel it's discrimination. If I was claiming unemployment benefit for at least four months then I would be entitled to it. Now I did apply to switch to invalidity pension because I was in an invalidity pension she would get the the bonus as I am no longer able to work. I'm 62 years of age from County Clare but love listening to C103. By the way I have sent a message to Heather Humphreys people will have to go to their TDs about this if we don't it will still be the same next time round so then I did A little bit more work on finding out why illness benefit doesn't get, particularly the Christmas uh, bonus payment, because the Christmas bonus payment is paid to most people on uh, social welfare. And it seems in the vast majority of cases, the department deem illness benefit to be a short term Payment and it's illness payment is those who get a cert from uh, their uh, doctor and they just need a certain period out of employment. So, because they deem it a short term payment, that's one of the reasons that it doesn't get included in the Christmas. Bonus payment and didn't get included last week in the autumn uh, double uh, payment. So, Mary, I, I wish you luck because if you're 14 months out now and you you are now deemed no longer able for work, then it is invalidity pension that you should be on. So, I wish you luck with transferring over to that payment, and at least with that payment, uh, there are other benefits will come with it. But that is the reason. But just to clarify that, because as I say, we did get a couple of people asking us, would they be getting the bonus? double payment last week on illness uh, benefit and then some people thought they were getting it when they went in and didn't get it so they were contacting us so no because it is a short term payment you're not entitled to it and I can already see this morning people uh, are saying it is so so unfair if you're on illness benefits that you don't get the double week especially when the other people on social welfare get it it is very very unfair. We were hoping actually in this hour uh, to speak with Paddy Cummins of the AA and this is to do with uh, people are noticing the increase in diesel it's gone up at court level highs if you are driving a diesel car or a van you will know when you pull in to get your petrol how it's gone over the two lit- the two euro a litre market practically every garage now uh, so we've invited the AA to join us unfortunately we had a problem with our phone lines and we couldn't get a phone line out to get uh, Paddy on the programme but we've sorted that out and he's going to be joining us after 11 but we're also when we have Paddy on the programme because a reminder to people this was something that got announced back in July, but it's coming in from tomorrow, the 27th of October. And it is some fines for driving offences are doubling from tomorrow. For example, the speeding fine that's going from 80 euro to 160 euro if you get caught speeding from tomorrow. Using your mobile phone while driving, I think a lot of people will agree with this, it will go from 60 euro to 120 euro. If you're not wearing your seatbelt, that's also going up to 120 uh, euro. And failing to have a child properly restrained in the back seat of the car will go from to 120 euro. So you need to. Now we're always saying to people to be to be careful on our roads, but you need to be even more careful from uh, tomorrow. And fines. Related to offences committed by learners and novice drivers, they're also going to increase. For example, the fines for a learner permit holder driving a vehicle unaccompanied, that's not having a qualified driver with them, that will go from €80 euro to €160 euro. and we often will get reports in from people who say they know of learner drivers who take the L plate down or when they do pass their test, they don't leave the N plate up for the required period of uh, time uh, and saying how are they getting away with that and well so if they're stopped by the Gardaí, they could be fined. The, the fines for those offences are also going to double uh, to hundred and twenty. So your thoughts welcomed on all of the fines doubling from tomorrow. Will it make our roads uh, safer or will some people say this is a way for the government just to make money? Your thoughts welcomed and we'll discuss it more.
6: You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
4: The cost of driving a diesel car has again after some much welcomed respite in recent months. According to the latest AA Ireland fuel survey, diesel is now closed to 20 cent a litre, more expensive than petrol. try to explain why, Paddy Cummins, Head of Communications at AA Ireland, uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Paddy.
7: Good morning to you.
4: And you're, you're very welcome to the programme. Is there an explanation as to why diesel has gone up in price this time round?
7: Well, there is, uh, I suppose. The explanation that we've been given is the fact that lots of European countries, including ourselves, have backed away from taking Russian oil. There is some Russian oil floating around Europe um, but as countries back away from it it's a case of supply and demand and the supply of diesel is starting to wane slightly as in there's the fewer sources of it because a lot of diesel came from Russia and um, the result is that the price of diesel is going up whilst Europe is pretty much awash with petrol so the prices remain stagnant so it's 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 sort of supply and demand is the is a relation for it diesel takes a little bit more refining and the cost of refining it can be a little bit more expensive and some of the refineries as well we know are have been making extraordinary profits um as a result of capitalizing on uh on the war in ukraine so so that's really the reason for it and, and that's why we don't that's why we haven't seen um we haven't seen petrol really increasing but diesel has
4: and you're, what's the year-on-year comparison for both petrol and diesel?
7: Well, diesel is about uh, 30% up from where it was last year. Petrol isn't, isn't as high, but, but, um, but petrol or diesel is now 30% more expensive than it was, uh, and it's 4% more expensive than it was just a month ago. Oh, yeah. Already those figures were quite high.
4: Yeah, because I think people were starting to get used to seeing it come down, and suddenly now it's 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 over two euro, isn't it? Nearly every four court you'd be, I, I, even though I did see one at the weekend at one nine nine, but that's almost an outlier. It's it's two euro now nearly everywhere and over, isn't it?
7: Yeah, that's an. Yeah, I mean, that would have been an average, obviously, the, the figure that we put out of two euro and two cents. But there's more expensive. We've seen two ten, two oh. eleven, and uh, uh, yeah, and there, and there is um, there obviously are places with with less where it's it's below the €2 euro mark. But the national average is €2.02. And, two and the highest average we had seen was in June last year, where we had €2.05. So that would be the record. Um, and, and we are not too far off. We're that. close we to continue that. Continue the way they are, we're close to that record.
4: Yeah, but, but, but just on a positive for any diesel driver listening to us, you do get more mileage out of diesel, don't you, than petrol?
7: Well, that is it because um, if you, you know, despite the fact that diesel is more expensive, if you're driving that diesel car, your tank will go that a little bit further. So we st- we still calculate that the average cost is still um, that little bit cheaper compared to running a petrol car. So while it's it, it's not good news if you st- if you still have the diesel car, don't panic because you're still probably paying less annually than than your neighbour with the petrol car.
4: And are there more diesel cars on the road here in Ireland than petrol, or is it? it
7: I've tried to get that exact figure and I, without much success. But the, the we reckon it's about half. I, I mean, if yeah. you consider that at one stage, seven, it was seventy percent diesel, thirty percent petrol in terms of new car sales, and that flipped. Um, we probably are somewhere in the middle. There's about two point four million cars on Irish roads. So we probably estimate that it's about you know one to one point two million.
4: Okay, a number of people asking the same question when you have Paddy on. Could you ask him, is he fearful of more increases in the months ahead, particularly the winter months ahead?
7: Well, I mean, I don't like like crystal ball gazing too much. But given, if we we apply logic, you know, the the fact is that this increase is coming about as a result of countries backing away from the fuel. The fuel, sorry, Russian fuel. Russian fuel is to be banned from the end of the year. So if the corollary of that would be potentially some increases... Um, it's it's likely that there will be some increases um, continued on the diesel fuel. Not sure about the petrol as yet. Um, but look, however, it, it's not a reason for people to sort of uh, run out and uh, try and change their car. That the cost of changing a car is infinitely more expensive than. Um, than any sort of annual increases in cost like look it's it's not ideal that the that the fuel is going up in price but those incremental ones are, aren't anything like sort of abandoning your car trading it in and going and buying a petrol car because these things can come and around, swings around mm-hmm. about again
4: and then for people who who may consider that as an option, it might not always be, be an option for them. I mean, saw a report yesterday that car prices are up more than 60% before the start of the, the pandemic. Second-hand cars, in some cases you could have bought a car a year or two ago and it's worth more today than a, what it was when you bought it
7: yeah and 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 that's not unusual at the moment you know that is happening a lot the simple reason for that is brexit brexit you know so many of our cars we were at one stage we were importing over a hundred thousand used cars from the uk um and the result of brexit is that there were increased tariffs put on the importation of of these used cars because they're not in the eu anymore so that um that the benefit of importing from the UK pretty much stopped, so used car values dramatically increased here. Plus, it was increasingly difficult to buy a new car because of chip shortages, mm. which happened as a result of COVID. COVID in, in COVID times, um, all of the chips went to people's laptops because they are all working from home, and the manufacturers who were car manufacturers who were sort of ordering as they needed them, the so-called just-in-time method. Um, were left short and, and the result was there was a shortage of new cars people scrambled to buy used cars and that puts the value of the used cars up
4: yeah and there's still a lack of new cars isn't there is there still a delay with yeah yeah it, yeah. I mean if
7: obviously lots of people are trying to buy electric vehicles at the moment and um, you know, there's an 80% increase in those compared to last year. But if you've ever been quoted a year, 18 months yeah, in some cases yeah. for some of those. And, and it's not unusual now for, for, for you know, six, eight months to be habitual in terms of waiting for a new car.
4: Okay. And obviously, while, while, while we have you on today, uh, Paddy, the big talking point, and I know we're running it on our uh, news as and from uh, tomorrow, I think it's 16 fines are to increase. And the whole idea is this is to make our roads safer. Will it?
7: Well, I think it, it, it will certainly help, but the, the, you know we've seen fines doubling in, in lots of cases. non wearing a seatbelt, mobile phone use, plenty there for learner drivers as well and company drivers. But, but it would appear the RCA are just trying to tackle the uh, offences that are still causing road fatalities. Because it is speed, it is mobile phone use. The fact that in twenty twenty two we're still talking about people not wearing seat belts just baffles me. I can't I can't get it. But that still is an issue. Um, So they are bringing those in and they're also bringing in some new fines as well. One um, is for people misusing electric vehicle parking spaces. So, uh, you know, uh, often anyone who's had an EV and if some of your listeners have had an EV, they'll no doubt have had the situation where they go to charge the car and somebody is just parked in it. There would be an €80 fine. For that introduced in the new year so that is interesting and welcome for ev drivers but in general we just have to you know we've had 123 people killed on our shows this year 12 up than last year we need to do whatever it, 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 it can be just to make people think twice about it and maybe the fines just weren't painful enough
4: Yeah. And Finbar from Bantry says, um, hi, Patricia, I saw a lady driving up New Street in Bantry uh, yesterday afternoon and she was texting on her phone as she was driving. Crazy, crazy uh, stuff. Uh, And and I know when I'm going to be having you on, on, we were going to be talking about this, particularly when it comes to the people with the learner uh, drivers, learner drivers driving without an unaccompanied driver. Everybody knows somebody who is doing that, but they do seem to be getting away with it.
7: Well, let's look, the, the issue here, enforcement as well. It's all very well bringing in all these measures and fines for, um, for, for you know, for all of these offences. But if these people aren't detected, you know, it may as well be a million euro fine or a five euro fine. You know, it, it, it's not going to matter. So we really just need to make sure that these offences are properly policed. And, and that will be the real deterrent in stopping people like that. and People, uh, you know, learner drivers in particular, uh, breaking the rules.
4: Yeah. And somebody says, could you ask Paddy, rather than go for fines, why would they not increase penalty points? Is this all about making money for the exchequer? Well, the, the,
7: I, I know that they, um, that it takes a little bit longer to introduce um, penalty point legislation. So it, it is easy for them very quickly to bring in the measures in terms of fines. So that we have seen that before. Um, so that would be one explanation for that uh, you know points it just it has to go through longer legislation but we you know i, I would imagine and i'm not at the press conference my colleague is but we will we will ask that question while, while it's on um but I, I it would appear to be my understanding would be that it's just generally quicker to introduce
4: yeah I, I, I mean i did i did hear a quote from the the junior uh, transport minister Hildegard Nocton, is responsible for this she says she's open to increasing penalty points but she said sw- swifter action is also needed so The reason they're pushing with the fines first. Okay, listen, Paddy, thank you for that. And thank you for taking time out to talk to us. Talk to you. Bye bye. 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 Uh, Good morning to you. That is uh, Paddy coming from the uh, AA. So, just a reminder as in from tomorrow, doubling of traffic offences. 16 different fines get doubled and it is from tomorrow the 27th of October. Uh, 0818 103, 103 Pat says Patricia, the government and its agencies are are pulling every trick in the book to rob the people. They give it with one hand and they take it back with the other, says Pat. He doesn't think. Now, Hildegard Nocton will say this is all to do with making our roads safer and even hearing Paddy Cummins say I got 123 lives lost on our roads this year that's 123 families who will sit down for christmas dinner this year and there'll be somebody missing from around that uh, table anything i suppose that can be done nobody likes to pay fines uh, but you know paddy is right i mean it's crazy to think that they even have to introduce a doubling of penalty points for seat belts. i mean at this stage everybody knows you get into the car and what's the first thing you do you put on the seatbelt. the mobile phone one i do think though if you're parked at traffic lights or like Fimber spotted yesterday in Bantry, the amount of people using their mobile phones, you can see them everywhere. Uh, it'll be it, it's enforcement, it'll all go down to enforcement if you can have all of the fines in the world but if it's not enforced and if people don't think they're going to get uh, caught and don't think that it's going to be enforced then they'll just keep doing uh, what is very stupid, stupid things to do and it can and does cause uh, accidents. 0818103103 just on a couple of other texts that are in. I can see the text backing up. I want to try and get to some of them. Uh, when we mentioned the new COVID, not the new, the COVID bonus payments that hopefully now will be paid out to the about 40,000 people who are entitled to it. Somebody said, Patricia, any mention of pharmacy workers getting that bonus for working during lockdown? A lot of staff got uh, COVID. No, I didn't see pharmacy workers, but that's something that the pharmacy unions, and I'm sure they possibly did. I know at the start, when the, the bonus first got mentioned, lots of difference in unions spoke up on on behalf of their people but you're right pharmacy workers like the other listener who was talking about working in a supermarket and shop workers and people in garages they were very much at the front line and on the Miriam who contacted us she got very upset last night watching a BBC piece about famine in the Horn of Africa and in particular in Somalia and the story of uh, a Somalian woman walking long distance to try to get help for her, her little baby and her baby died in her arms on the way and had to be just left on the side of the road and she to walk away watching the vultures moving in I mean inc- cre- incredible stuff then Mary making the point, you know, while we might give out about this uh, country, there's nobody dying like that and we don't have famine like that uh, on our shores. And she was saying for people to please try to give to the aid agencies that are doing such tremendous work on the ground. That's prompted a listener to say, Patricia, whether it's on radio or on TV about giving to charity, it always makes my blood boil as I just end up feeling so helpless. All those TV appeals literally cost thousands of euro to make and broadcast. Then they've all of this printed literature surely all the advertising stuff should be broadcast free of charge and printing companies should make their contributions by not charging the charities if i manage to scrape a few quid together i hate the thought of going on admin and not to the victims also i don't agree with people being paid for charity work that to me is contradiction in terms well when you speak with any of particularly the larger uh, agencies, the aid agencies, they tell you they have to spend a percentage of their money on advertising in order to get money in. And like they would have all the statistics showing that then when they run a particular ad campaign, while it might cost them X amount They'll be able to show you how much they get back in. So those very powerful ads, while they're very upsetting to watch, they do work. They do tug at the heartstrings, which is what they're what they're meant to do. And I know there's always been the ongoing argument about people in who who work in charities, work for charities. CEOs, for example, and the administration staff getting paid high wages, and, and people feel very aggrieved by it. But when you look at those aid agencies, they really are run like small businesses, and they have to run like small businesses in order to generate the amount of money that they need in order to help the people that who most need it, like the people that are dying in Somalia at the moment. But I know it galls a lot of people when they hear of somebody working for a charity and actually getting paid, but they are at the end of the day, they are businesses. Now, they're not. For profit businesses, they're in the business of making money to give to those most in need. 0818 103 103. John Paul is taking your calls. You can text your WhatsApp to 0862 103.
3: C103 103. 103 Jobs.
4: Part-time worker wanted for a dairy farm in the Mallow area. Now, may suit a student or a semi-retired person. 087 297 9018. A trainee accountant and a qualified, account- a trainee accountant, and a qualified accountant both wanted for work in Bandon. Please visit www dmfinancial.com and click on careers to get full job description and application details. An office manager with at least three years' experience in office management, accounts and bookkeeping is required for Mallow. CVs please to office at hallmark.ie and ground workers are wanted for Middleton, for Cove, for Cork and for Carrigaline. Then I'm going to call for more details 087-178-5595 you'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more this is C103 Cork
3: today on C103
4: with
6: Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group Promoter, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. CMIG.ie.
4: In a new TV documentary, activist and journalist Joanna Reardon looks at women's sport in Ireland, examining if there's a level playing field for females and what more can be done in terms of progress. To chat about a sporting chance, which will premiere tomorrow night on RTE1, I'm joined by Joanna Reardon. Good morning to you, Joanne. Hey, how's it going? It's going fine. Always great to chat with you. Now, you grew up in what can only be described as a sports mad house. Were you aware of women's sport when you were growing up?
1: Yeah, I think we're very fortunate, you know, here in Cork especially, you know, that we had the 10 All-Ireland winning ladies football teams. So I always knew they were there. You know, my sister played as well for our local club. Um, so, yeah, I was definitely conscious that women in sport existed, but... It's still really funny, you know. There was like an unconscious, you know, choice or whatever it was, where, you know, if there was something on myself and my dad, we toddle off to a men's match instead, which is, you know, kind of sad in its own way. But I mean, he did take me to a lot of, a lot of ladies football matches. My first time in Crow Park was 2005 for uh, Cork and Arma and thankfully Cork won. And we got to Pitch Invade and uh, obviously we couldn't bring the wheelchair. So my dad picked me up and put me on head so I could see everything. <laughs> so, yeah, I was definitely aware. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and then we have like, the women's soccer team uh, is totally an example, isn't it, of what can be achieved by women in sport when they get the proper investment.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, it was it was five years ago when I had started writing about women in sport. And, you know, my first task was to discuss the situation with the FAI, which was incredibly hard at the time. You know, I mean, the girls were basically campaigning for like really, really basic things like Good hotels with good Wi-Fi, you know, um, actually being able to have their kids as soon as they, you know, get home rather than changing in the toilets of an airport because an under-15s boys team needs it, you know, the following day. So, you know, I mean, the fact that they actually stood up all those years ago and, you know, I mean, we still have remnants of that team, you know, with Kate McCabe and Anya Garman, um, Diane Caldwell, Louise Quinn. And it's just so nice to see how... All the things that they, you know, would have been thrown into in 2017, that they're now coming full circle in that Katie McCabe and, you know, Seamus Coleman, the Irish men's captain. He, you know, they all campaigned for equal pay. They got it. They got an incredible investment. Um, And I think you can see now the rewards are being reaped like so much, you know, by actually sending Ireland to a World Cup.
4: But shocking to think that it took a strike by those young women in order to achieve it.
1: Yeah, it's terrible. You know, I mean, it should never, it should never be seen to be getting that far. And I think, you know, that's what the documentary explores, you know, whether, you know, should we have more women in boards, you know, trying to make organizations on behalf of women's teams, you know, which I think is is, is obvious is needed. And Sport Ireland have acknowledged that as well. So, you know, I mean, it's just it's about tackling all these issues. And I think the, hopefully the documentary will raise questions as to why, as you just said, it shouldn't have to take a strike, you know, for all these to happen.
4: And it will get the conversation going. And that's what we need to do. We need to throw a spotlight on it and get people talking. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you very much delve into financial uh, supports. And, and and how do financial supports for, say, female athletes compare to males? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, we have an entire section dedicated to money because at the end of the day, you know, capital and money makes the world go around. And I think it's about challenging the perception of, you know, supporting women's sports. You know, I think that phrase needs to be retired and I have to look forward to more. You know, we're supporting. We're literally just watching sports, you know, like we would every single Saturday or Sunday with our family, our friends or whoever it is. And. You know, just making sure that the game is more accessible, more visible, because, you know, it's, it's a chicken and egg scenario. You know, you have to make the game more visible to get more supports, but you need more support to make the game more visible.
2: Yeah. So-
6: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: It's about, you know, understanding that, you know, I mean, a lot of the time when, you know, a lot of men's sport don't exactly pay anyone back. You know, it's what you get in return in terms of emotion, drama, hype, expectations, you know, tears, tantrums, whatever it may be. Whereas women's sport, it's a strange one because you actually have to provide proof that it is a viable business. And I think we have to change that mentality.
4: Someone's saying, I ask Joanne, do we need more coverage on TV and radio of, of female sports? And how does that compare to other countries?
1: Yeah, I mean, we definitely do. I think we're definitely on a par in terms of our, our European and global counterparts, which is a shame in that, you know, it's only, two, you know, 2%, I think, of, of coverage is actually going towards women in sport, which is which is really sad in its own right. You know, I think other, you know, T.G. Car is an example, have done incredible work in pushing, especially ladies football. Like, they were on that bandwagon way before anyone else was. And they're now trying to do the same with the Women's National League. And I think it's about doing, you know, minor things that, you know, we would obviously take for granted in media, you know, which is give a little, you know, retweet, a like, you know, a little mention in the news broadcast, whatever it may be. And I think just get people aware that there are women sporting events going on. So, yeah, you know, I definitely think we need to do better. We're definitely on a par with our, our, count, our global counterparts, but it's not in a good way that we're on a par either, you know. I think Sweden yeah. have the most where it's literally 50-50 on their um National broadcaster and like you know on their news page, it's fifty percent whatever's happening in the men's world and fifty percent what's happening in the women's world.
4: We're a long we're a long way away from that, but I suppose it's only it's when attention then goes. I mean the the girl the female boxers at the weekend. Is that true? It's when when they win that there seems to be so much focus put on them.
1: Yeah. It- it's either it's either a win or a controversy you know that's yeah. that's, the, that's the thing it's either someone needs boots or someone has done an incredible uh you know made an incredible achievement by winning gold at, at european standards so yeah you know i mean it is incredible to see what they've done i think they would also agree that you know they're constantly exceeding expectations and constantly exceeding the supports that they're given um to achieve these great things and i think the other side is We as casual sports viewers in would tune in and say, "Well, why aren't they doing anything? You know, it's they're not getting the supports that their counterparts are getting on on a global scale." You know. and, you know, I mean, Amy Broadhurst who we interview in the documentary, you know, she, I mean, she has a lovely thing about how Katie Taylor was her first role model. So she decided she wanted Emily Katie Taylor when she was 12 years old, but mm. she didn't get paid from her world championship win for about seven months. You know, like that's a long time to be waiting for your payday.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I know as part of the documentary, you ended up uh, chatting with a, a doctor and a nutritionist. Um, what did you discover about the impact of hormones on, on yeah, female I sports mean, people? This
1: is- this is definitely something uh, I have a conversation I have 11 on Wednesday morning, but yeah, I mean, we learned so much about, you know, the menstrual cycle in terms of how it actually impacts, you know, performance, you know, a lot of, I think it was Ailish McColgan, a Scottish runner, you know, she had said, you know, the Olympics are the Olympics. And if I get my period on the day of the Olympics, then that's, you know, I have to work with that. I can't exactly ring up the organizers and say, no, I'm not feeling well. So We learned, you know, obviously that every woman is different, I think, which is hugely important. And I think it's about literally using tiny things every single day, like putting into your calendar what mood you're in, how you're feeling strength-wise, what foods you ate, and then see what the, the, the direct relationship is with that. And then you can kind of tinker it and change it as you go. You know, they're all small changes. And then psychologically, I think what we learned was incredibly interesting in the fact that women actually just don't back themselves, you know, but funnily enough, because they don't back themselves, they're actually less likely to choke on a game So if you're 10 points up the following morning or 10 goals up, there's a very high chance a female athlete will continue that powerful reign. Whereas a male athlete, because they get excited with testosterone, they're more than likely to choke and maybe lose 11-10, you know, which is really surprising. Um, The fact that you wouldn't back yourself, but at the same time, you're strong enough mentally to actually come through it. Um, So yeah, it was was really, really interesting. And, um, you know, it, it really kind of blew my mind. And I think that's one thing that I took away from the documentary is that there's very few people backing women as it is. We don't need to be hard on ourselves yeah. and not back ourselves.
4: 100%, you know? 100%. If we don't back ourselves, there's nobody out there uh, to do exactly. it for us. When, and is this, is this just a one-off documentary tomorrow night, Joanne?
1: Yeah, this is a one-off documentary, which is you know tragic in its own way because we could have delved into every single subject for about a 12-part Netflix documentary series. Um, but yeah, tomorrow's a one-off and I think it's kind of funny when you release something. We had the idea that when we released this, we wanted it to be dated very quickly in that we wanted a lot of the hurdles to be obviously brought to everyone's attention. But for the power of society, global audience, the power of media to actually remove all those hurdles pretty much by the end of next year. So although we're excited for the documentary, we don't want to come back in a couple of years time and have to remake the same thing again.
4: Yeah. And when when did you film it?
1: Um, so we have been filming since May of this year oh. so it's been a six-month project mm. and um, I officially wrapped up on Monday where I had to do my voiceover so it was an incredible thing and behind the scenes it's been going on since about probably September last year so yeah it's been a long time coming.
4: And you've always been a great advocate for girls to get involved in all types of sports even if they can't f- physically play which obviously you, th- you can't physically play sports but you've always been involved in sports.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was I was literally the lunatic on the sideline who would take it way too seriously. Like, I think, like as I said to my brothers, like they got to kick the ball or maybe punch a fella in frustration. I never got to do that. I had to scream it out like a psycho. Uh, so yeah, like I mean, I was always I always love to be involved, and I think. We shouldn't tiptoe around the fact that just because someone can't play doesn't mean they can't be involved. And we interviewed Michelle O'Neill as well, um, the, the lineswoman for, for Ireland. I mean, she's gone to Olympics, European Championships and World Cups as a lineswoman. So, like, there's an example of someone where you don't necessarily have to play, but you can still go on and achieve great things as well.
4: Uh, OK, and we started out by I, I talking about the ladies' uh, soccer team and uh, <laughs> what, how fantastic they're doing and you you touch on controversies what did you make of the controversy from the dressing room of what happened afterwards
1: yeah like I mean look I mean it's something that obviously shouldn't have happened and I think that's the thing the sanctuary of the dressing room is now kind of broken with social media and celebrations and stuff like that I don't think the girls meant anything you know too menacing you know by it I think it was just you know overcome with emotion and joy and happiness and I think you just forget what's going on um, you know, I think Chloe Mustaki you know, handled it absolutely perfectly when she was on Sky and they kind of patronised her. saying, Wasn't you know, oh, she, she
4: just amazing?
1: Yeah. yeah. And I mean, Chloe, you know, she's just an incredible athlete in herself. You know, everything she's overcome, you know, she's had a multiple ACL injuries, cancer diagnosis, and she's now going to a World Cup. And mm. for me, that should have been the story. But I think, look, the girls... The girls took, you know, they took responsibility, which I think was needed. And look, I think it's a good way that women's sports are held to a higher example, because I think sports needs to be cleaned up in terms of that toxic chanting and in terms of just, like, broadcasting pure hate and visceral, you know, true fan chanting. So, you know, I think it's it's a good thing that we hold them to a higher example, but I think the storyline should have been all these incredible women who've done incredible things. But, you know, controversy sells, as you know.
4: <laughs> it does, it does indeed. How do you think they'll do in the World Cup?
1: yeah, like it's going to be tricky. and I think we're very fortunate with the draw that um they're actually on all at like kind of ten or eleven o'clock in the morning, which is good from an Australian point of view. Um, I think it's I think it's the best way to go about it. you know Australia obviously are the are the, the home crowd you know so that would be an incredible experience on the first day you know to launch the tournament then obviously canada are your olympic champions so they're going to be very tough and then you've got nigeria you know who you're hoping you can actually get something against. so i think it could be a very classic example of all irish you know participation competitions where you get one win one draw one loss but yet you still manage to go through somehow so you know that's what we're hoping for i think at this stage
4: and they should have a lot of support there's a lot of expats living in australia
1: There are absolutely loads. I was literally saying it to a couple of the GA girls who have gone over playing AFLW. I'm like, God bless your apartments because you're definitely going to have about 50 to (laughs) one room.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Will you you be pushing to go out and do some coverage, Joanne? You'd be great.
1: God, God, I I hope so. I mean, if it's it's in the line, I'd love to do it. I was saying it to someone else recently that we have... um, I think Amazon are following the, men's, the German men's team in Qatar. And I think it's about time someone follows the women's team during a World Cup. So if Ireland gets elected, I would happily, in a heartbeat, go over to Australia with my little camper van and my dog and I'll <laughs> go crazy for those. <laughs> she it's has the weeks.
4: bags. She has the bags packed and the, and the passport I, is I up to date.
1: Have
4: <laughs> passport up to date. She's off. Listen, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Joanne. The programme is tomorrow night. RTE One. at what
1: time? Uh, quarter past ten. Quarter so after
4: past Ten uh, fifteen after prime time. And uh, it'll be available then on the player if you don't get it tomorrow night. Listen, really looking forward to to seeing it. Thank you for that and look after yourself. Thanks William. Thanks a million. million. Bye bye. That is the wonderful uh, Joanne O'Riordan in advance of her programme. It's called A Sporting Chance. Uh, tomorrow night, ten fifteen. O eight one eight one oh three one oh three. John Paul taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to oh eight six two. 103 103.
3: Court today on C103 With
6: Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group they don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk ie.
4: Some people reacting to my piece with uh, Paddy Common of the AA and when we spoke about the fines for speeding, holding a mobile phone, not wearing a seatbelt or among those are going to be a doubled from midnight tonight in total 16 fines will get increased and it's all to do with making our roads safer and my dad was killed by a drunk driver roads are very very uh, dangerous Ah, oh, goodness me sympathies and I don't know how long ago that was because hopefully we don't see or hear as much about drink driving thank God um, but and drink driving isn't actually mentioned in this particular um, group of uh, fines uh, but uh, yeah uh, I think we've have we got a handle on drink driving I think uh, gone are the days where people would have had a few drinks and got behind the wheel of a car it's not to say that it doesn't still happen Unfortunately, it does. Uh, Mick in Middleton says, Hi Patricia, if you double the fines and double the penalty points, are they doubling the €12 where you'd lose your licence to 24 points? No, Mick, because they're not doubling the penalty points. They're only doubling the fines. Hildegard uh, Noctum, the junior transport minister, said she is open to increasing penalty points, but the swifter way to get things in place was to double the fines. I don't know whether they need to have uh, legislation that would need to go through the Oireachtas, which would take longer in order for them to double the penalty points so penalty points are remaining as is you'll still pick up uh, penalty points although they are pains to point out that if you do receive 12 penalty points in 3 years you will be disqualified for 6 months and of course if you are a learner or a novice driver that threshold is much lower you only have to pick up 7 penalty points in 3 years in order to be off the road for 6 months so there isn't a doubling of the penalty points but is it something that she's open to looking at yeah I think she is and then Michael says uh, uh, Patricia, the fines are not worth the paper they are written on unless the Guardi are out enforcing them. I don't know when I last saw a at checkpoint. Surely with the new app, the Gardaí can enforce... Gardaí enforcing them should be easier. We all know people who are on their handheld phones regularly and the level of aggression on our roads is certainly on the increase. Michael reckons he sees it regularly. He also reckons females are definitely much more aggressive on our roads. Anybody else noticing this? And in particular, says Michael, they don't give older or learner drivers a chance, for example when you come up to junctions, enforcing the law and enforcing the laws, um, it's what's needed. And in fairness, Paddy Cummins from the AA said the same thing, that even though from midnight tonight, these 16 different fines will be doubled, but he says, unless you have the Gardaí out on the street, out on the roads, enforcing them. Michael's right, they're probably not worth the paper it is written on so only time will tell will we see more Guardy out enforcing them 0818 103 103 John Paul taking your calls now more than six students and te- teachers at Kaloshta Eamon Rees in Cork have been learning life-saving CPR skills at school. Volunteers from Cork City first responders, along with members of the National Ambulance Service, Cork City Fire Brigade and the local Gardaí were all involved in a special training day. And we sent our reporter, Mairead Tuigalong, to find out more. <laughs>
3: 600 students at Kalosh to Aim and Reach have had the opportunity to learn life-saving CPR at school. This is, uh, was so cool, I guess. Now I can make CPR, how it's called. Yep. It was a bit tiring, but very helpful. Can like help my family or anyone in danger, like having a cardiac arrest or something. That You can like save someone if they're in need or if they're in trouble. Or if they just
8: collapse. Like I heard a lot about it before so it's just good to learn about it. I live with my grandparents like so it's good. It's really helpful, like, that everyone knows how to do it. So like in
5: case anyone is in danger and they're choking, you know how to
3: do it now. Volunteers from Cork City First Responders, along with members of the National Ambulance Service, Cork City Fire Brigade and Local Gardaí were involved in the training day. Past pupil Barry O'Donoghue is scheme coordinator with Cork City First Responders.
8: It's great to have all these groups coming in, participating in this, getting involved with the school and bringing awareness to it because that's the most important thing really is the awareness side of it as we were saying to the group of first years that we just had, it's very important because they might not do it, but they could teach somebody at home to do it. So they could have mum or dad, they could talk them through it, they could be out on the street and they could see something and they could talk somebody through it as well as doing it themselves, you know. So there's huge benefits to it. Like as we were saying, the six hundred and forty people going home today. To have a better awareness of how to do CPR, how to deal with somebody that's choking, and what to do if you do ever come across those situations, you know.
3: In the last 12 months, teenagers under the age of 16 have been involved in saving the lives of at least three people. Principal Aaron Wolfe says knowing how to perform CPR is an important life skill to have. In
7: education, obviously English, Irish, Maths, there, the compulsory subjects are all very important. But isn't it fantastic that schools teach life skills as well? We're in, we're involved in the emotional and social development of young people and this is a key example of how we develop them as social um, partners in society.
3: PE and English teacher Eamon O'Keefe says it was a great opportunity for the school community.
7: It's so relevant and it's so practical and even some of the stories that you hear about our young students between their own parents and grandparents that they've had different mishaps and uh, you know it's great for them to experience today in just I suppose not too serious, but at the same time, a fun way of learning. And I, going by what I saw, I think they all learned valuable skills. Hopefully, they won't have to. Implement them, but at least they're done anyway, you
3: know. David O'Connell of the National Ambulance Service sees firsthand how vital CPR is.
6: By someone doing compressions, they're keeping a person alive, they're keeping their heart, the blood pumping around their body, and that enables the person to, to be alive until further help arrives. Really, we know now where we're saving the knowledge. That should we get a call to Deer Park, we know that there will be some amazing CPR being done before the arrival of the emergency services.
3: Jero D is community engagement manager with the NAS.
9: We've seen in the last twelve months alone where um, teenagers under the age of sixteen were directly involved in the saving of at least three lives. Not only can they do it themselves, but they can also coach people at home. Um, on how to do CPR and actually tell the parents what to do. Um, So it's absolutely invaluable, and what they're doing here in the school today is fantastic. Uh, But over 600 students are going to go home now today with um, a massive skill um, and hopefully get their parents involved and spread the word. Swimming, CPR, self-defence, they all come into the same thing. It's going to help save somebody's life or save your own life. I suppose the value for us now is that what we can see from a statistic point of view is that well over 80% of cardiac arrests that happen in Ireland have somebody doing um, CPR. And that's, that's a world-leading world statistic. Um, and it just means that more people get to go home to their families at the end of the day.
3: Cork City first responders wanted to teach 1,000 kids hands-only CPR throughout November. After their visit to Colossia Eamon-Reese, they've shared life-saving skills with more than 600 young people. And they now expect to teach closer to 1,500 before the end of next month. D says the more people who know CPR, the better.
9: I think this is fantastic what the Cork City first responders are doing. There is huge value in something just rolling out, not only across Cork, but across the country. Now, I know the Irish Heart Foundation do have CPR for schools. It's targeted at a certain age group. But again, we would like to see everybody having the skill.
4: OK, and our thanks to Mirage Tewik and the Deed, the, the gang at uh, Colossal Reach in Cork and along with all the first responders, National Ambulance Service, the Fire Brigade and the local Garda who got involved. I think it was a fantastic thing to do and let's hope other schools follow suit.
6: You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
4: We were talking about fuel prices and we touched on the fact that diesel is almost at its record high that it's ever been in this country and no sign of it uh, going down for sure. But we also touched on the fact that petrol seems to be stagnating that seems to be staying there seems to be a lot of petrol around but not as much diesel well that's prompted a few people to say oi hang on a tick." I've seen petrol go up in price Joe in Kilmallock says uh, 2 euro and 6 cent for diesel in Kilmallock 187 for petrol and Tommy in Mallow he keeps a close watch on the price of petrol he says it was 1 euro and 73 cent he said but this week it's gone up to 185 so petrol is also going up but it's the gap now between petrol and diesel it's at least 20 cents. That's what the average difference between petrol and diesel is at the moment, with no sign of it coming down for sure. On learner drivers and the fact that we heard the fines are to increase from midnight uh, tonight and uh, it's 16 different fines are going to be uh, increased, uh, doubling. whole idea is to make our roads uh, safer, but a cohort of them are to do with learner drivers and novice drivers, and in particular if a learner driver is out driving without the L plates up on the car are if they have the L plates up on the car and they're driving without a qualified driver, then their fines will double as well. Charlie was listening to that and he's making the point and sort of speaking up on behalf of learner drivers in rural Ireland. How can somebody who lives in a rural area expect to have some the, someone with them 24-7 when they want to uh, drive? And they're now hitting them with doubling of fines from midnight tonight. It is really, really unfair, especially given the lack of public transport available to people who live in r- rural areas. It's different if you're living in a city or an urban area you will have public transport so there's no excuse for you to say oh I had to drive the car because I needed to get somewhere and there wasn't a bus but that's not the same for people in rural areas and Charlie says it isn't always possible to have a qualified driver available to sit in while you're driving from A to B Tommy in Killa is agreeing with a number of people who feels there simply isn't enough gardi on the beat here in Cork or indeed anywhere around uh, the country uh, in order to enforce these new New fines. They can have all of the fines in the world, but useless. Unless there is enforcement, it'll just become a box-ticking exercise. Tony Imbandin agrees that drivers are becoming more aggressive. He thinks it is mainly due to frustration as we're all rushing from A to B. One of your texters earlier in the morning uh, says Tony mentioned that women. Has anybody noticed that women are becoming more ag- aggressive? Tony in defence of women says this has got a lot to do with parents around rushing from work to child binders or to the school gates. Many of them are doing rushing around during their lunch hours. Maybe they're going without lunch because they've got to pick a child up or drop a child here or get the child from the child binder and they're all rushing around trying to beat traffic. He reckons that's the reason that beha- people are behaving the way they are and that we are seeing a lot more aggressive driving on the roads. Kieran in Mallow reckons people are driving also, he says in a rude way, so I'm assuming he also means aggressive as well. He reckons that's to do with congestion on our roads. He said if you go into Cork City, it's a car park in many areas. Traffic is simply not moving. It's the same around many of our county towns. He reckons that is leading to angry drivers. And if you have an angry driver, guess what, you have an aggressive driver. And Trish in Douglas, kind of backing up that, she was saying yesterday she was uh, out and about, she was travelling from work, and I'm assuming trying to get home, and she said it took her two hours to travel from work across the city, but she said what was really annoying about her journey home was the amount of people using shortcuts blocking up the yellow boxes. She said, I know it was a completely wet evening and that there was flooding in some parts of the city, but she said, I feel when it comes to blocking laneways and um blocking up the yellow boxes which then of course the lights change and nobody can move she reckons the fines don't go far enough she also reckons it can be the cause of some accidents and some traffic jams many of the times it's because people are not sticking to the rules of the road so she reckons that fines around those issues should be increased and should be uh, along with um, extra penalty points for those offences okay that's just some of your commentary in on the doubling of of the fines from midnight tonight 8 08-18-103-103 and Liam Imbrough is picking up on something we spoke about yesterday which is the changing to the changes to the licensing laws for pubs and uh, nightclubs. Uh, Liam is saying why the licensing laws may change to extend the opening hours, and it's all to do with this nighttime uh, economy. How will establishments now deal with the extra costs involved? There'll be extra electricity and extra heating. St- Venues are now going to need more staff. For example, if you get a nightclub that's going to run until 6am in the morning, that means you're going to have to have extra DJs. You can't have a DJ coming on at 11 o'clock who'll stay there until 6 in the morning. So for nightclubs, it will mean having to employ two DJs that are also going to have to hire more bar staff. Again, you can't have somebody working all night long. How are they going to cater for that? Well, I think the argument, Liam, that I've heard being put forward for that side of it is that those venues are going to make more money and that people who work in the industry are quite excited about it, that they can make more money and it will put an injection into the nighttime economy. And yes, they were accepting that they're going to have to have extra staff as well. I think the bigger problem is finding the staff because you ask to, you talk to anybody in hospitality, or in the bar trade, restaurant trade, any across any of the hospitality sector they'll all say they're struggling absolutely struggling to get staff to work and suddenly you're going to be asking staff to come on at two in the morning and work through until six I think that's going to be the bigger issue but just on the update on that that we touched on yesterday on the new uh, licensing uh, laws it'll mean a, a later opening time for pubs and ni- and uh, nightclubs it's not going to happen before next summer because yesterday when we were mentioning that it was going to be brought before uh, cabinet Yesterday, lots of people were saying, would it be in time for Christmas? And I was thinking, nah, I can't see it being in time for Christmas because obviously there's legislation that has to go through. And Helen McKinty it's under her this as the Justice Minister. She's hoping that the legislation will be passed by the summer of next year uh, because the Cabinet yesterday, they did sign off. It's uh, the overhaul of, as we were talking about, the country's 200-year-old licensing laws. A hundred different pieces of legislation will be taken off. Off the the books and put into this one piece of legislation instead, the law uh, changes were supposed to be enacted by the end of this year. But they're accepting lengthy and complex legal changes need time to be scrutinised and passed through the door. So, Helen Mackenzie says, my hope is it'll be enacted by the summer of 2023 to be able to allow venues, nightclubs, pubs and others to avail of the changes. Um, uh, Supermarkets and off-licences, and that was something we didn't touch on yesterday, they will also see changes because they will be allowed to sell alcohol from half past ten on a Sunday. And I know I've often been in a supermarket and I have to say it's happened to my good self if I want to maybe get a nice bottle of wine for Sunday lunch and you forget that you can't buy wine at an off-licence or a supermarket before or half past uh, 12 and how often have you had to leave it at the counter because the checkout operator can't sell it to, to you so that will change because pubs when these, when these new laws come in will be able to open from half past 10 seven days a week and remain open and will serve drink until half past twelve so it will also affect supermarkets and off licences just on that one day of the week they will be allowed to sell alcohol from half past ten now taxi companies obviously a lot of them were reacting yesterday I did see in the paper this morning that Taxi App Free Now they welcomed the extended opening hours I know I did hear some of our local taxi drivers weren't that happy with it but they do say there's a need for improved and extended public public transport that operates day and night. Now Helen McEntee said that the longer opening hours will take the pressure she reckons off public transport. This obviously now is for cities she says because the revellers won't all be coming out at the same time all trying to get home at the same time but she did say buses will have to operate in the early hours of the morning. While she said it's not an absolute science, she does believe that by spacing the numbers out as to what time people are going home she reckons it will lead to less antisocial behaviour. But again, that's one of those ones that only time will tell. And concerns have also been raised that if you do have longer opening hours, will that lead to increased alcohol consumption? And certainly, That was something that we got a number of calls in about yesterday. People were worried about, you know, are we not a nation of heavy drinkers already? Are we just encouraging people to drink more? The Thornish de said he doesn't think the changes to the licensing laws will lead in any way to an increase in uh, alcohol, but he did admit, he said nobody can say it for sure. I know those in favour of it were saying that rather than people drinking more, people will space out their drink more if people know that they're out and they're able to stay out until you know, half 12 instead of having to go home last drinks at half 10, for example, that people will space out their drinking rather than the binge drinking that goes on. People trying to get all their drink in before closing at time. Helen McIntyre said the government is trying to get the right balance between alcohol consumption and improved licensing for nightclubs and for uh, pubs. But what really came out yesterday when... the big discussion was had about this was the number of nightclubs in this country, particularly with the nightclubs being allowed to open until 6am in the morning but as as I made the point yesterday, that's only going to be nightclubs in city areas, you're not going to find nightclubs in rural areas or even um, some of the urban towns opening, I don't think, until 6am in the morning and then of course the big question is will you be able to find a nightclub in a rural or smaller urban area because it seems 20 years ago there was 500 nightclubs uh, in this country. That's just 20 years ago. So the turn of the, the beginning of the noughties, we had 500 nightclubs. Jump then to 10 years ago, the, there was only 300 nightclubs. Uh, and now, if you were to count nightclubs around the country, Helen McEntee says there's only 80 in operation uh, today. And she says it's a sector that's dying on its feet. And they're hoping by doing this... By improving the licensing rules and regulations and laws around nightclubs, that it will actually put an injection into the nighttime economy and we may see more of those nightclubs reopening. But we've gone from five hundred nightclubs, twenty, just twenty years ago. I thought it was I thought it was back in the eighties. They were talking about it wasn't. It was twenty years ago with five hundred nightclubs. We're down to now about eighty in operation today. And I saw a report on the news yesterday of Salt Hill in Galway uh, that they, uh, they they in, back in the 80s would have had 21 nightclubs and they're now down to one. So they really are, they really have sort of died a death over the years. So will this give an injection back into nightclubs and will we see more of them opening? Only time will tell. 0818 103. 103. John Paul taking your calls. We are looking for gardening questions and you can text our WhatsApp as well to 0862 103. 103
3: The C103 Cork Diary
6: with Cork County Council where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie.
4: Doneraile Sour Festival are having pumpkin carving for kids it's happening tomorrow at the Presentation Pastoral Centre in Doneraile it's 10 euro and your pumpkin will be supplied. Phone Shane at 085 824 7193. Knocknagree Community Ed Development Group CLG are presenting a fashion show tomorrow night at half past seven. It's in Rathmore Community Centre. A free makeup and skincare demonstration will take place in Mulcahy's Life Pharmacy in Mallow tomorrow. That's from 10 a.m. tomorrow morning until one o'clock. There will be a raffle with a variety of prizes on the day, and tickets are already available. You can pop in today and get a strip of tickets for €5. Euro. All proceeds will be donated to Cork Arc in conjunction with Breast Cancer awareness at month. And registration is open until this Friday to enter your scarecrow in the annual LEP Scarecrow Festival. And the registration is free and there is a first prize of 200 euro, euro which you only have until Friday, to register your scarecrow. You can check out details on the Facebook page, LEP Scarecrow Festival. Court today
3: on C103.
6: With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Promoter, home, business, farm, life. Life and Health Insurance, PMIG.ie.
4: and don't forget uh, all day this Friday we're giving you the chance to win 100 euro fuel vouchers and that's timely soon. We were talking about the increase in uh, diesel prices. We've got another C103 free fuel Friday. If you win one of our 100 euro fuel vouchers you can fill up the tank or you can heat the home. C103's free fuel Friday with East Cork Oil serving Cork City and County and right across Munster. For the you can check it out your oil local oil company dot i e only on C103 and this is our final week of it we've had great fun giving these vouchers away so good luck Uh, you might be able to win on Friday now let me look at some of your commentary coming in I'm still getting an amount of commentary in about illness benefit and this was in regard to people who are on illness benefit they didn't qualify for the bonus autumn payment that was paid out the double payment that was paid out to most people on social welfare last week and this is part of the government's plan to help people with the uh, cost of living uh, and just to give you an example of some of the texts and commentary coming in uh, Margaret says I was listening to you yesterday and the list it kicked off yesterday and the listener who rang in about in- illness benefit and about the bonus week etc. No we don't get a thing and we don't get the Christmas bonus uh, either you are correct. Uh, that's definite because I am one of those people myself living on illness benefit I'm in my late 40s it's impossible to live on it and maybe with the little extras everybody else is getting they would go a long way I mean we all have to live exactly the same as everybody else people who are on an invalidity pension people who are on a disability pension and any other person that qualifies for all of the other extras we have to buy and pay for exactly the same things do the government not realise that you might put it out there as to why we're not eligible as we have to be assessed every so often by health officials we are not on illness benefit just for the sake of it well i'm not anyway best wishes says uh, margaret and then we had another listener who's been on the illness benefit for quite some time and is trying to transfer over to invalidity pension somebody said uh, and is in the process of trying to transfer over tell that person good luck with that it's impossible to transfer over onto an invalidity pension i should know i've tried i'm on illness benefit for 30 years I'm sick of trying to transfer over onto an invalidity uh, pension. I'm 60 years old at this stage, but I'm just thankful for everything that I get, says this uh, texter. And then someone else sent me in a clip. I I take it this is from gov.ie and they were talking about the different bonuses that are going to be paid out for people like the extra cost of living bonuses that are going to be paid out in November and then the Christmas bonus that's going to be paid out uh, to people at the start of December and it states on it that the normal Christmas bonus which is 100% it's a double week will be paid to to people getting a social welfare payment for at least four months and a lot of people are saying well I'm on an illness benefit and I'm on it uh, longer than four months why am I uh, not entitled to get it and the departments say that illness benefit is a short term payment even though we've somebody there telling us that they're on illness benefit for the last 30 years how can that be deemed a short term benefit and while the news was on I did a quick little search just to see if I could find out anything from the department and you know, have they any plans uh, to change those rules and I saw it was actually this time last year it came up with a question to the Minister for Social Protection would she amend the eligibility criteria for persons who are on illness benefit that they'd get the Christmas bonus payment or that they could also receive the fuel allowance because they don't get the fuel allowance either. And that's where she stated that the, that particular illness benefit is deemed short-term payment for those certified by a doctor as needing time out for work from their employment due to illness. And for that reason, they're not eligible for the bonus payment at Christmas and of course she wasn't to you know this time last year that they would be giving out other additional bonus payments as well. But she did say in her answer in the doll and this, this is relevant to anybody on illness benefit particularly anybody who's really struggling at the moment and you're only living on an illness benefit and you don't have anything else you don't have savings to tide you over she did state that under the Supplementary Welfare Allowance Scheme the exception needs payments may be made to help meet an essential once off cost uh, which customers are unable to meet out of their own resources and she you know she cited things like exceptional heating uh, costs now obviously the decision on those payments are made on a case-by-case basis and we did touch on that only last week on the programme when we had, was it Sean Sherlock was on talking about the exceptional needs payment and there's another one called the urgent needs payment. It is assessed, it is on a one, it is assessed on a case-by-case basis but it is an option and it is there and we do know that there has been an increase in the number of people applying for exceptional needs and applying for the urgent needs uh, payment. So it might be something for people who are on illness benefits and who are really, really struggling at the moment, consider that going to Community Welfare uh, Office and trying to apply for that. And Joe was on to say that a friend of his is on illness benefits and his friend's wife is on a disability allowance. There's no other income. They've no other savings. And they've been refused the fuel allowance. And while you would be refused the fuel allowance because the this benefit doesn't cover the fuel allowance either because of it being deemed on a short-term payment, uh, the disability allowance would would be classed under the fuel allowance. But is it because your friend is on the illness uh, benefit remember there's going to be changes to the fuel allowance in january uh, so they may be able to apply again but I, again i always say on issues like that you can appeal but also i direct people get onto the Citizens information uh, center because they'll go through everything with your friend and his wife and to see if there's any other way around if they were turned down for a particular reason they may be able to find another way around or they'll be able to tell them for sure as to why they were turned down and what was the actual reason for it 0818103103 i can see gardening questions coming in for peter keep those coming in but there is an amount of other uh, other um, comments coming in with regard to driving and how people are driving on our roads. And this led to somebody saying has anybody else noticed people have gone more aggressive on our roads? Somebody says, Patricia, there is no excuse for aggressive drivers. This listener feels most of them are young males and young females. I was in the USA for 25 years. I've never seen driving like this before. The speed also is way too high, especially on rural roads. Some of these people should be actually put off the road they shouldn't be on the roads at all aggressive driving on narrow roads trying to pass out in a double white, white line going around a bend is simply not acceptable says this texter. Also an elderly lady entering the roundabout in Cantor. Yes she was in the wrong lane but a big range rover came up behind her very aggressively honking the horn uh, and just having absolutely no patience and no manners it makes me not want to drive on our roads. My husband works for a big industrial company and he's driven all over the world he says he's never seen the like of the driving that goes on in this uh, country he said it's not the older drivers it's always the younger drivers I always say they think they control the car but but yet they don't realise that it is the car that actually controls them as a text in, there's no name on that. Thank you for that text. Sean says, Hi, Trish. The problem is not drivers. The problem is with our county councils. Sean thinks there's too much traffic calming measures, long strips of concrete that doesn't allow traffic to flow. This is adding to drivers' fuel costs. Sean also feels it is harmful to it is harmful to the environment. Roads will need to be protected and roundabout central green areas made smaller. What would happen then is operation traffic free flow. That's from Sean. Thank you for Sean for Sean for that. And somebody says, how dare somebody say that learner drivers are dangerous on the road. Full drivers are just as dangerous. I don't think anybody said learner drivers are more dangerous. The point that it was made, being made is learner drivers will see a doubling of their Fines if they're driving without a qualified driver. Okay, and then just a couple of other ones mixed up in the middle of all of the gardening ones, keep the gardening ones coming. Mary says, Trish, I'm just wondering if the huge trench, is how Mary describes it, on the roadway at the quarry corner on the road between Columny and Crossbury. Does anybody know, has that huge trench been filled in? And the reason Mary has contacted us, she reckons a minimum of 6 motorists, have had burst tyres there of late including only last night a member of Mary's family. There's no hazard warning signs erected to warn drivers of this hazard. The state of our roads is a contributory factor to road traffic accidents due to cars being damaged says Mary. I would suggest Mary that you contact the local council and make them aware of what's happened, particularly what happened to your own uh, family member and see if they can put up some kind of a warning sign because it does sound like there needs to be some kind of a warning sign uh, put in place. And just a final one, on the nightclub's been opened until 6, somebody's against it. It will lead to young people drinking more and more. And guess what? It'll lead to parents being extremely worried, waiting for their young sons or daughters to come home. Oh, eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Just a sample of the huge amount of commentary that has come in to us this morning. Thank you for all that. And our apologies, by the way if we didn't get to all of your calls. Now before we go to the break and line up uh, Peter Dowdle to answer your questions Bandon Library, they've launched there, we spoke about this, I mentioned it last week, it's a new addition to their service which now will enable borrowers to access the library outside of the usual opening hours. It's called My Open Library. It offers extending opening hours to library members on a self-service basis from 8am in the morning to 10pm at night and that's 365 days of the year. So if on Christmas day, you're feeling like you need a book to read and you're a member of Bandon Library and you're a member of the My Open Library service, you can pop on down. Now, there'll be no staff present for the My Open Library uh, hours which is nine 8am to 9.30am and then 5.30pm to 10pm at night. Regular open hours remain unchanged and the library staff, which was what I was worried about when I heard about it first, the library wonderful library staff at Bandon Library and indeed all of our libraries, we have incredible library staff, they will always be available to assist during opening hours and they will help people where uh, possible. But this is just an additional service that is available at Bandon Library and I don't know whether it's going to be rolled out across other libraries or not but just means when the library is closed if you are a member you will be able to pop in on a self-service basis so good luck to everybody there with that My Open Library Abandoned Library 0818 103 103
3: Cork Today on C103 With
6: Corrigan Insurance's Macroom, McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group they don't just talk the talk they walk the walk cmig.ie
3: This is the Cork Today replay on
4: C103 Peter Dowd on the uh joining me. Good afternoon to you, Peter.
5: Good afternoon, Patricia. How are you?
4: Uh, I'm very well. Very wet at the moment, but we're hanging in there. Uh, lots of people obviously wanting to cut back things at the moment. This is the kind of the year, isn't it? I always feel this is the time of the year we're putting the gardens to sleep almost.
2: We kind of are, aren't we? I think the Americans term it. I don't normally go for Americanisms, uh, but I think that their word for autumn, when they call it the fall, makes a lot of sense. The fall of the year. And we're, we're putting, putting the garden to bed is right, yeah.
4: OK, so lots of uh, people, as I say, have questions to do with cutting back. Let me get uh, to uh, some of them. Catherine Inglamire was on. When is and is now the right time to cut back raspberry bushes?
2: Do you know what? It is, and she's just reminded me of another, another job on my own to-do list. So, yes... <laughs> It, it is. And um, cutting back raspberries, it's, it's very, very straightforward. It couldn't be easier. And I often see articles in books and online and they try and make it sound very confusing. But really all you're doing when you're cutting back raspberries is you're looking for the the, the shoots, the canes, if you like, which fruited this year. Uh, and they're very obvious now because they've gone brown in colour. They're kind of nearly woody-like. Um, so you just cut them to ground level. And the other ones that are green and very pliant in colour... Um, are green in colour and very pliant they are the ones which didn't fruit this year and they will fruit next year so you leave them well alone and the brown ones you just got back to ground level and really any time between now and kind of January February but, but the sooner the better really
4: Okay and then somebody has an, it doesn't state the type of uh, shrubs but a number of shrubs with flowers on them uh, they, there are flowers still on them but they're withering is now the right time to prune them back
2: Again, we, we get questions like this quite often, Trish, and it's a, you can't obviously give a specific answer to that because there isn't there isn't a catch-all time to cut everything back. But in terms of, I suppose, taking it from the question that there are still flowers on us, that, that kind of means that they are summer flowering or later, okay? So a good rule of thumb is if something is, is spring flowering then it will flower on growth that was produced last year. So in other words, if something's going to flower, let's say next spring, let's say March, April, it's going to flower on growth that was made this year. So cutting it back now, you'll lose the spring flowers. But if something's flowering on current year's growth, in other words, uh, plants that flower later in the summer, they will flower. So in 2023, plants that will flower in late summer, will be flowering on growth produced in 2023. So you can cut them back in the springtime to encourage plenty of new growth, which will hopefully lead to plenty of flowers. So hopefully that's a kind of good general guide in terms of how to cut back or what to cut back.
4: Yeah, because Johnny is wondering about sunflowers. The beautiful sunflowers is now the right time uh, to cut them.
2: Well, it depends what you want to do. Presuming that they they're finished flowers, there's still a few flowers left in mind. The last, God help us, ones, but you know they're still struggling even with all the rain. Uh, they must have. They must have wondered what they did to end up growing <laughs> in rainy Ireland. But there you go. And um, so ones that have died back, you can. You could. I would let the seed heads go, but let them ripen a bit further. Obviously, you can leave them on and let the that the birds feed from them directly. Or alternatively, you can harvest and dry the seeds. And, and sow them again next year or use them as a bird feed uh, but if, if the seeds have ripened then yes you, you can take them down now and remove the plant
4: and you have sunflower seeds yeah exactly Yeah, yeah. Jenny is in uh, Black Rock she said she got a late rush on roses she said which was lovely to see but she noticed yesterday in the garden that there's black spots on a lot of the leaves they weren't there during the summertime. advice please
2: well, oh, you know what? It's a good sign that they weren't there during the summertime. I mean, if you look at the amount of rain that we've had over the last month, it's a wonder everything doesn't have black spot, myself included. Um, so, black spot is a fungal infection that thrives in, in warm and damp conditions. And we're in the end of October now, and I think it's, about, it's still about 13 or 14 it's, it's degrees. It's
4: extremely warm. I mean, I was I was giving on the weather forecast. I think it's got 18 degrees for tomorrow. You know what I mean? We're we having a very mild, thank God, thank God we don't have the heating on.
2: Yes, yeah so with with those mild temperatures and the amount of rain it's it's perfect conditions for the for every fungal infection in the garden my advice is to absolutely nothing because the roses are going to drop their leaves soon anyway. When they drop their leaves, I suppose the only thing the only advice I would give is don't leave the infected black spot leaves around the base of the plant because they will spread it back into the soil. So, do remove them. Um, you can put them into your own compost bin or put them into the, the brown bin for the, the council. Um, but I would uh, not leave them around the rose plants, but I wouldn't be treating them with copper sulfate or anything like that at this time of the year. Uh, I'm a great believer in deciduous plants. When they when they drop their leaves, you know they're going to lose a lot of the infection anyway. So to do nothing. And if it, if in, in next spring when you when you if when they're cut back and just before they come back into new growth, you could drench the plant then with the solution of copper sulphate and water, which will help to prevent it happening again next year.
4: OK, but it's purely down to the to the weather uh, conditions. Now, Kean hasn't specified what type of hedge, unfortunately, he has, but he says, our hedge is decaying in the middle with no leaves on it at present. Could you ask, Peter, is there anything that can be done to restore to its former glory? And I'm wondering, is it a Griselinia hedge? Because somebody else is on about a section of their hedge, a Griselinia hedge, where the middle... One middle and one outer section has no leaves, so I don't know if it's if Keynes is a griselinia hedge or not.
2: You see, Keynes may or may not be. So I can't really answer it specifically. Either it could be a conifer hedge as well, or you know. Yeah, I, so I if can't
4: key, yeah, if Keynes wants to get in more information uh, to us, uh, please do. But for the griselinia hedge,
2: well, you know what? I was just going to say I can't give a definite answer on either one anyway. Okay. Um, because with the griselinia, I would imagine with with um both. Any or both, it is probably a fungal infection again. Um, it could be, without putting the fear of God in people, it could be a problem called phytophthora, which is a is a problem and it does wipe out established plants seemingly at random. Um, and it can be common in Grislini. Unfortunately, the thing to do if it is that is is to remove the infected plant roots and all, and get as much of the soil out as is possible, and put in clean soil. Uh, and maybe not the plant, but maybe not to plant grislinia in its place now if it's a hole in an established hedge obviously putting something else in there would look all wrong but very often when it's an established hedge you won't need to replace it because the plant on either side will fill in the gap provided the infection hasn't spread to them so that's a question of wait and see but i would in the first case certainly get the the dead one out and the 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 dead one at the end so you've got one in the centre and one at the end. I would get them out sooner rather than later, uh, as much soil as possible, put in fresh soil, clean soil. Uh, but I would do nothing in terms of replacements. I would let the hedge just fill in the gap itself, which I imagine it will fairly quickly.
4: Donna, our listener put in rhubarb in the summer. It's quite big now. What does she do with it over winter?
2: Nothing. Leave, leave leave it to nature. It'll die back itself uh, as the temperatures drop. Um, just clean it up and then give it a, give it a mulch. Then, with, if you go down to the beach after a storm and get some seaweed, uh, give it a good seaweed mulch or a mulch. Even with they, they are quite hungry, and the more you mulch them over the winter, the better they'll do. So, even your own homemade compost, any good organic material to give them a mulch, uh, and that'll help them for next year. But really, even if you don't, if they're doing well, they, they'll continue to do well into next year. A
4: listener has uh, minute miniature hydrangea plants uh, wants to know what do you do with them for the winter do they need to be cut back Uh,
2: you see there's a couple of different types of hydrangeas now without getting too far into it hydrangea macrophylla which are the ones that we all kind of regard as hydrangeas which are the lace cap types or the the mop head types they I say this with no degree of experience but, but I have seen them marketed some of the varieties marketed over the last couple of years as dwarf or miniature I'm not sure how dwarf for miniature they are because just because I haven't grown them. But then the reason I say all this is because then there are other hydrangeas which are actually indoor. for, for not, They're only suitable for indoor here and I think to the best of my knowledge they're Hortensia hydrangeas. Um, if the, So the reason I say all this is they are quite low growing and if it's an indoor type well then it will need to become indoors for the winter. However... If it's one of the the macrophylla types which have been which are being marketed as the dwarf, then they'll be fine to be left out during the winter months. Um, but I would cut them back. But I would wait. I would wait till the other side of the winter, just in case we get extremely low temperatures during the winter, and who knows, we might. Um, by leaving this year's growth and the old dead flowers on it it does give a certain degree of protection to the base of the plant from frost and snow so I would leave it alone and then let's say end of February is when I would start cutting it back
4: Okay and uh, David is doing his armchair gardening at the moment he's got all his plans in place uh, for next year and one of the jobs he has to do he says I need to move roses next year because they're not thriving where they are because they've ended up in the shade due to a tree overhead so I'm moving the roses I know I can't put roses back into that spot Space, but is there anything else I can't plant where roses
2: once were no, the, the, no there isn't it's a, spe- a replant disease it's called he's absolutely right not to plant roses back where roses were believe it or not for 15 years um, but there is it, It's, it's a replant disease is what it's referred to as and it's specific it's actually a disorder not a disease but uh, it, it's specific to roses so no you're not limited as to anything else you could put back in there
4: but obviously the fact it's a shaded area he's got to keep that in mind
2: Correct. It'll You'll be limited because of the shade, but not because of the replant disease. But um, And depending on how heavy the shade is, of course, it be- does become more and more challenging. And if it's very close to the, the, the tree, you might get to the point where, where nothing really, except some spring bulbs will grow there.
4: Okay. All right. We'll leave it there. Thanks for that, Peter. You're very welcome. Thanks Have a good for it. week. We'll speak again next week. That's uh, Peter Dowd on theirishgarden.com. That's where we leave you for today. Thanks to John Paul McNamara and Nick Richards with you for the afternoon. Talk today today on C103. 10.
6: With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. C-M-I-G dot I-E.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.